Hello and welcome to Macrobytes, the economics and politics podcast from Aberdeen. My name is Paul Diggle, Deputy Chief Economist at Aberdeen, and today we are talking about housing markets. Is a global housing market downturn developing? How severe might it be? And which countries and economies could perform better or worse during a housing correction? So it's a very important topic. It's one that people are interested in, both personally and also because it's a key driver of the broader macro economy. And I'm delighted to be joined by Adam Slater, lead economist at Oxford Economics, who are a leading macroeconomic research consultancy. And Adam has recently written a series of very insightful research pieces on global housing market dynamics. He's someone I've spoken to in the past for insights and direction on the course of the global economy. So I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. Adam, welcome to Macrobytes. And let me start by asking you the, the 10,000 foot kind of overview question of the state of housing markets. What are house prices, housing market transactions, new starts doing in the major economies? What trends can we pull out? Okay, well, we see a, a general pattern of housing markets moving from expansion to contraction. Um, prices are falling in most of the major economies in the US, um, Germany, the UK, China, um, also in places like Australia, Canada, New Zealand, Sweden. Um, so quite widespread price falls now. Uh, the one exception among the major economies at present is Japan. Uh, in terms of transactions, yes, we also see a sharp slowdown there. Um, quite strikingly in the US, mortgage applications have roughly halved from their peak and are now close to the lows we saw after the global financial crisis. And in the UK, mortgage approvals have dropped sharply as well in recent months, now below pre-pandemic levels. And in terms of construction, well, um, again, the US data has deteriorated a lot in recent months, um, down around 25%. In China, we've got an even larger decline, more than 50% from the peak. And we can also see quite big declines in places like Sweden. Um, it's not a universal pattern, though, yet. Um, so if we look at, for example, Canada, where prices have actually dropped quite rapidly in recent months, there hasn't been a decisive downturn in housing starts yet, and nor has there been in the UK. So generally, it's a picture of, of decline in most of the major economies, but with, with a, a few variations. Interesting. And we're going to get into the drivers of that, that variation, that cross-country difference. Is it the same story everywhere of those drivers being moderating broader economic growth, the real income squeeze, higher mortgage rates, or are there idiosyncratic stories as well that explain why some economies, housing markets are doing better or worse? I think for most of the advanced economies, the basic drivers are similar. We've got sharply rising interest rates, mortgage rates, squeeze real incomes, weaker economic growth. Um, the extent to which these factors are operating across economies does vary. Um, so rates are rising much faster in some places. Real income squeezes are larger in some places too. For example, places where we've had very big rises in energy prices. Um, and some markets are more sensitive to the change conditions than others. And this reflects facts like um, how much prices ran up before the downturn started, the degree of overvaluation, structure of mortgage debt, floating versus fixed. Um, so to give an example, Markets like Canada and New Zealand appear to have been especially vulnerable, and this is visible in recent price trends. Whereas we have some markets which have been 
are fairly quiet in terms of price rises activity in recent years, like Italy, Japan, and there there are a few signs of any downturn so far. Um, and in terms of overbuilding, well, this was definitely an issue the last time around uh, in the wake of the global financial crisis in several markets, probably most notably um, Ireland and Spain. O on this area, we're perhaps cautiously optimistic because there hasn't been a very large boom in house building in recent years in most of the major economies. China's an obvious exception here, of course. Um, and we'd point to a, a few other markets where um, there has been quite a, a strong boom, Canada, Finland, Taiwan, New Zealand, um, and to a lesser extent, Germany. So people's reference point when they're thinking about housing downturns is, of course, naturally the financial crisis and that experience through 2007, 2008. Can you give us a sense of where there were overvaluation problems this time around, where there was overbuilding? How did it compare to those excesses on the eve of the financial crisis? Were we as stretched in the likes of New Zealand and Canada on valuations in, in China on oversupply as we were, say, in the US or Ireland in 2007, 2008? Um, I think in terms of valuations, the worst kinds of valuations we're seeing or the, the highest level of overvaluation we're seeing in, in our very long-term model um, that, that we use is overvaluations of about, around about 15% or so perhaps up to 20% in, in some of the, the frothiest markets. Um, that is broadly similar to what we saw um, ahead of the global financial crisis, um, but not necessarily in the same economies. So, for example, valuations in uh, the US were probably higher th that time around. Um, so um, it, it does vary. In terms of um, overbuilding, um, housing construction, um, well, we've got... Um, Quite, quite a mixed picture, I think. I mean, you've got places like Ireland, where, for example, you had extreme levels of overbuilding, um, if we go back to the global financial crisis. Um, but after a, a dramatic decline, things never, ever recovered. And um, house building levels are now still extremely low by historical standards. Um, whereas we've got places like um, Canada, where house building has been fairly, fairly hot over the last... Um, few years so that the, the share of housing investment in GDP in Canada is quite high, around 9%. Um, and that is higher than the global financial crisis peak, quite clearly higher, and also quite significantly higher than the sort of rolling 10-year average as well. So it, it varies quite a lot. Um, in some cases, we're seeing places where levels of risk on these key indicators are similar to what we saw before the GFC. In other places, it's quite different. There's been something of a rotation because some of the markets are at riskiest that time. Uh, like the US, look quite a lot less risky on, on some of these metrics uh, this time around. That's also true to some extent for the UK. Good. And then the rising mortgage rates you mentioned is, of course, a, a, a absolutely crucial driver of why some housing markets are under pressure. But it's not only the size of the typical increase in mortgage rate that matters, of course. It's the degree to which it's passed on to borrowers. So the share of floating versus fixed rate mortgages uh, matters. The typical maturity of a fixed rate mortgage matters. And all that's, of course, governed by the structure of individual countries' mortgage markets. Can you talk through, Adam, some of those cross-country differences? Where are mortgage borrowers particularly sensitive to changes in mortgage rates and where are they perhaps more, more insulated? Sure. Mortgage market structures vary a great deal across the, the major economies. So you have markets like the US where the bulk of lending is at very long-term fixed rates, you know, often 30 years. 
uh, and places like Germany, France, which are all dominated by fixed rate lending um, with lengthy terms. Then you have places um, like Australia, Spain, Sweden, Korea, Norway, where a lot of lending is floating rate. And then you've got sort of intermediate cases, I suppose, like the UK, New Zealand, Canada, where fixed rate lending is the largest part of lending. But the length of the fixes is typically not very long, maybe two to five years. And that means, of course, that in any given year, quite a large fraction of the outstanding fixed rate loans need to be refinanced, which in the current environment would mean substantially higher yields than they were taken out at. And I think it's actually quite important to, to, to drill down to the detail here because um, in places like New Zealand, for example, around 40% of fixed rate deals are due to mature in 12 months. So it's actually much more of a floating rate market than it necessarily appears from the just the, the floating rate share data, if you like. And have those have those shares of, of floating versus fixed or the maturity of fixed rate mortgages changed over time? For example, had the long period of very low interest rates post-financial crisis pushed people into different mortgage products than might have been typical of an economy? I think it varies a lot um, across markets. Um, one very notable thing that we have found in the data is that in Canada, there's been quite a a notable shift towards floating rate lending in the last couple of years. And this is an additional risk factor for what's already a risky market because obviously people have been buying, taking out floating rate debt quite close to the top of the market where you know, prices would have been elevated as well. Um, we also see some evidence um, that floating rate borrowing or borrowing on very short-term fixes is on the up in, in one or two other markets like the Netherlands as well. So you do see shifts towards floating rate um, in some places. I mean, in other places, floating rate has become much less popular. For, for example, in the United States, adjustable rate mortgages, as they're called there, were quite popular in the period just before the global financial crisis, but they've dropped in popularity very substantially since, and they're not such a big issue there anymore. So it varies quite a lot across the markets. Of course, the, the structure of the mortgage market has very long-term drivers behind it as well. You know, the US's prevalence of, of very long 30 or 15 year fixes is all to do with the the history of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and how mortgage financing works. So that kind of deeper history of, of mortgage market structures comes in here as well, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. There are, there are long-term structural factors which determine not just the way that um, mortgages are structured in terms of their interest rate, but also um, their maturity, also how much debt people take on. Things like mortgage interest tax relief are, are, are important in some places too. Where you have that in existence, like um, Denmark, for example, people have a tendency to take on bigger mortgages than they would do elsewhere because it's tax efficient to do so, especially in a country where, where um, marginal income tax rates are quite high as well. So um, these kinds of factors are, are important in determining structural features, levels, levels of debt um, quite often. Well, let's talk about levels of debt, Ben, and, and kind of the ratios of typical borrowing to income or whole economy housing leverage to income. These big macro variables are an important part of what economists care about. Are there housing markets where, where housing debt to income is notably high and therefore perhaps vulnerable or, or still quite low, um, and, and therefore the, the housing market might be more insulated there are. I mean, it varies a lot, as I said. I mean, you've got quite high debt levels in places like uh, the Netherlands, Denmark, Australia, Canada, New Norway, New Zealand, 
typically over 100% of income and in some cases approaching 200%. Um, and then you've got places where it's much lower. Um, it's 60 to 70% in places like Germany, Spain, Japan, even the US now. And only 33% in Italy where there's a very uh, different history with um, people not tending to box or take out mortgages to buy homes, but taking money from family members or whatever instead. Um, now in terms of what it looks like versus the GFC, well, as I mentioned earlier, there's been a bit of a rotation here. There are markets like Sweden, Canada, Norway, Australia, where debt levels are higher now than they were before the GFC, where, where leverage was actually added after the GFC. Um, whereas in places like the US, the UK, Spain, Holland, there were quite big efforts by households to deleverage after the GFC. So you, in those cases, you've got um, debt levels. While in some cases, they're still high, are actually generally quite a lot lower than they were before the GFC. So you've had this rotation of risk out of some of the riskiest markets that were there uh, say 2006, 2007, and, and towards some other markets. And is that is that rotation because of the chastening experience of the financial crisis? So there was a long deleveraging after that because households had, had reassessed you know, their desire for mortgage debt, but perhaps those that were relatively more unscathed by the GFC then continued to build. Is that is that why you, you see those kind of shifts in, in the pattern? Yeah, that's certainly part of the story. Um, some households chastened. Um, some of the reduction in mortgage debt in the US, for example, was actually due to debt being written off, um, defaulted debt, quite significant in some places. Um, what happened with the other markets, I think, is that they got away without having a very big initial downturn in the GFC. And as global interest rates dropped very sharply to lower levels, that actually encouraged people to go out and borrow more. And so they reinflated the, the, uh, the bubbles quite quickly in places like Australia and, and Canada, for example. Um, so you yeah, had these sort of two things operating in tandem. Those markets which escaped an initial very bad downturn actually ended up being boosted by the GFC because of its impact on global interest rates. Whereas those that didn't escape, you've had this kind of long-lasting deleveraging effect, which, is, which has gone on really right until the last few years. So Adam, the very clear picture of cross-country differentiation driven by differences in, in debt levels, mortgage market structure, um, the extent of broader macro headwinds to the housing market. That's the clear message. In, how do you pull that together then into a consistent framework that might give you a sort of a bit of a rank ordering of where you would expect a, a housing downturn to be um, more and then less severe? How do we kind of bring that all together? Well, we've had a couple of goes at modeling things um, at Oxford Economics in this area. Um, one thing we've done is ranked economies across a range of risk factors, things like recent price changes, um, the extent to which we see rates increasing, um, valuations, floating rate shares in debt, and, and mortgage debt levels. And we rank the economies on each of those and then take an average rank. And that sort of exercise brings um, countries like Canada, New Zealand, the Netherlands, Australia, US, to the, to the, to the top of the risk table. Um, and places like Japan, France, Italy uh, are at the bottom. Another thing we've done um, is we've looked at um, drivers of past house housing downturns uh, across a range of economies and worked out um, what the key driving variables are in those cases. Um, a different kind of modeling. Um, and what we found from that was that one factor which is very important um, 
is what happens to unemployment. Um, rising unemployment can have a very big impact on house prices by creating a lot of forced sales. Um, and forced sales themselves tend to have uh, a disproportionately negative impact on housing markets because they're often executed at rather low prices. So higher unemployment, higher forced sales means, means a, a bigger risk level. Um, so one of the key things to watch, I think, over the next 12 months, really, is just how big an increase in unemployment we will have across the major economies. I mean, there's some reasons for, for optimism in that area, in the sense that um, we seem to have very tight labor markets now. So it could be that um, there won't be quite as big a rise in unemployment as there was uh, in some previous recessions. And in that case, we might get a, a milder outcome for, for housing markets too, because as we mentioned, this is, this is quite a, a key variable in determining what happens. And housing markets, of course, are not just driven by the macroeconomy. They are in turn an absolutely crucial driver of the macroeconomy. Sure. Um, so why don't Adam, you talk us through the transmission channels through which that operates? Uh, how, how does housing drive the, the broader macro? Okay, well, I think there are probably five or six key channels for this. Pure wealth effects, which is just people feeling poorer because the house price has gone down and then spending less. Um, what you might call collateralization effect, people stop borrowing against the increased value of their homes, so there's less equity withdrawal. Um, there's lower housing transactions also mean less consumer spending on things that are associated with house purchase, so yeah, mm. sure, fittings and so on. Um, housing construction, what we find is that price downturns tend to be associated with large drops in housing investment as well. Um, and that directly affects GDP. And finally, I think financial feedbacks. Um, so rising non-performing housing debt, mortgage defaults, damage bank balance sheets, and banks then react by reducing lending more generally, slowing the economy in another way. So all these factors are in the mix. And is, um, is your assessment that that financial channel, the, the latest one th through bank balance sheets, which of course was an absolutely crucial feedback loop or almost doom loop yeah. during the financial crisis. Is that one as vulnerable now as it was then? Or is your assessment that banks have um, improved the quality of their loan books, you know, done less in the way of financial engineering that that, you know, it's still a channel, but it's not the powerful amplifier that it has been in, in the financial crisis? Um, it it looks like, based on things like capitalization, that banks are in a better position than they were um, in the global financial crisis. Um, obviously, we had quite a lot of regulatory reform in the wake of that. Banks were obliged to increase capital levels quite substantially. So on that basis, banks look less vulnerable, and so we get less of a financial feedback effect. Also, as I mentioned um, before, if we get a less pronounced rise in unemployment, that probably means fewer mortgage defaults to level, less danger of this particular channel operating. Uh, having said that, um, what we can see from central bank surveys of bank credit standards is that banks, especially European banks, are already starting to tighten lending for mortgages quite sharply in response to the external factors that they can see operating already. Um, and this obviously will tend to worsen the housing downturn by stymieing lending to the sector. So we're not out of the woods entirely on this. It may be that banks are just being very um, preemptive here getting ahead of the game um, or it may be that they end up overreacting um, and actually worse and, and in 
thinking about the the wealth effect channel and uh, is and we have obviously seen some degree of fall in house prices already as you described at, at the start is there signs in things like consumer confidence surveys that 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 wealth effect channel is operating already well consumer confidence surveys certainly look pretty grim in the main um, whether or not that's to do with housing is another question um, because obviously mm-hmm. they take into account rather a lot of things mm-hmm. uh, and probably the primary driver of those just now is is the you know the cost of living squeeze connected to energy prices and so on um, so I think it would be maybe a little premature to to, to link the two at this point but um, and also you know the, in most places um, the, the drop in house prices we've seen so far isn't isn't a very big one we're at the very start of this process so it would be surprising if that was having a big impact quite yet that doesn't mean it won't have uh, in due course, of course. And then perhaps as a final question, Adam, is how how big a macro headwind does it all add up to? So there are multiple transmission channels, as you've described. I know you've done some modeling work of what plausible um, housing downturns you know, with this regional differentiation mean for you know, macroeconomic aggregates, things like GDP, what sort of size of additional drag on the economy are we talking about well obviously we've got a certain amount of um of downturn in our baseline forecast now um the modeling you refer to is um something which involved us shocking housing markets and residential investment by more than we had in the baseline and what we find um is that you get quite a big impact actually if you do this so if you cut house prices by a further 10% on top of what we have in the baseline globally, then global GDP is reduced by about 0.2% in in a year or so. Where we actually get the really chunky effects, though, are if we start a layer on some other impacts. So if we drop residential investment by around 10% compared to the baseline, then we actually reduce global GDP by 0.6% in a year. Um, So then the cumulative impact of those two things is getting up towards you know, 1%. And if we add a credit tightening channel in there as well, along the lines that we just discussed, um, you could plausibly get another 0.5% or so off GDP in a year. So adding all those things up, you can get an effect of about 1.5% um, of GDP. And these are chunky when, numbers in the context chunky of global number, GDP, Especially when of course. you consider that the baseline mm-hmm. is only for GDP globally to rise by about 1.5% anyway, which means if you, if you take off this one and a half percent, you basically get zero or something something near to zero. So with with this additional sort of impact, um, you can you can see global growth effectively wiped out. And whilst this is, you know, the the, the shocks that we're talking about here are are you know, relatively big, they're not absolutely colossal. So um, it's a plausible downside. Yeah, so an absolutely crucial pivot point of of the global economy to watch in in 2023 then so adam slater lead economist at oxford economics thank you very much for sharing your insights on macrobytes and thank you to you for listening to macrobytes as ever please like and subscribe on your podcast platform Uh, but until next time goodbye and good luck out there This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for informational purposes only and should not be considered as an offer 
investment recommendation, or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein, and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication, and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The companies discussed in this podcast have been selected for illustrative purposes only, or to demonstrate our investment management style and not as an investment recommendation or indication of their future performance. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections, or estimates, and provide no guarantee of future results.